Today's Dead Idea, Viking Berserkers. Last time we heard all about these enigmatic shield-biting warriors, and today we're going to explore their world through stories and snippets from actual Old Norse literature. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. The music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westhoff, my lovely wife, who is prepping for a legal battle today so she can have a Viking funeral when she dies. <laughs> yeah, and you know, you know, she's willing to make some compromises to accommodate modern sensibilities. For example, she's willing to forego the human sacrifice, <laughs> but she absolutely insists on the human league sacrifice. Those vinyl records are going straight to Valhalla. <laughs> Do you know Human League? Uh, no. Oh, Human League is like, don't you want me, baby? Oh, okay, yeah. Don't right. you want me? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> They're great. Nice. <laughs> of course, straight in uh, Rachel's wheelhouse being from the 80s. Yes. Uh, with me today is my co-host for the series, Andre Solo. I am frothing at the mouth to be here. <laughs> there is actually one saga where it shows where it says they froth at the mouth. The oh, berserkers. okay. Well, I yeah. take back everything I said previously. They're just <laughs> frothing at the mouth lunatics. Again, that could have been one of them that was exaggerating the picture right. centuries later, right? Anyway, for much more detail on what berserkers really were, maybe... Go see our first episode. Today is all about the Berserker's world. Andre, before we get started, though, we've got a tradition to observe. We have to do our fake sponsor. And also, (laughs) it's been a long time since we have raised a toast to our patrons. So we're going to combine those two things. So the fake sponsor, we often do this, usually try to do it once a series. And we have no legal affiliation whatsoever with the sponsor. That's what makes it fake. (laughs) (laughs) We just plug them because we love their product and it's always a beer. Usually a local beer. In this case, not. In this case, it comes all the way from Denmark because I have something very special for our Vikings series. We have Danish mead. Wow. Nice. (laughs) Yeah. And believe it or not, though, mead was not the staple drink of the Vikings. It was not. Was it ale? It was ale hmm. for everyday drinking. Mead was for special occasions. That makes sense. So like festivities, ritual ceremonies, it's the killing the fatty calf kind of thing. So when you see like a chieftain throwing like a great feast in his mead hall, that's special. Hmm. Yeah. To be able to drink that much mead is like a real privilege. That makes sense. Honey is a lot more expensive than barley. Or a lot harder to get in the ancient world than you had to work for it. So anyway, uh, what we've got today is called Vikingernes Mied. That's probably a horrible butchering of that pronunciation, but it's from Donks Mied in Denmark. Also, the Vikings uh, would not, they would have drunk this out of horns. Right. And a horn, if you think about the shape of it, you can't set it down. So I think the idea is that you're supposed to drain the whole horn in one go. Um, or at least uh, in I thought one... they passed it around. Well, you could pass it around, or you could carry it around, mm. but you're not going to like sit down and come back to it later. It's not a sitting right. drink. <laughs> right. <laughs> you yeah. know, that kind of thing. All right. So I tried to find an authentic Viking toast that we could use to toast our patrons. Unfortunately, I couldn't. Uh, the best I could find was the uh, trendy new Minnesota Vikings cheer skull, uh, which actually is from Old Norse and really does mean health. So, meh, yeah, we'll use it. Yeah. All right. So first, let's pour. Nice. 
Well, it, it definitely has a beautiful honey color and uh, smells like mead. All right, so let's raise our mead to our patrons on Patreon. Today we drink to all our patrons. To Brian Barrett, to Nicholas Prisbilla, Jennifer Sosnowski, Richard Little, Mary Tokumaru, Jen Graneman, Andre Solo, <laughs> Anna Bratton, and our newest patron just this week, Christina Moore Gotcher. May your drinking horn be full and your life fuller. Skull! Skull! Mmm, that's very sweet. Mm hmm. Really honey -y, but yep. actually pretty good. That's like really it. nice. Yeah, I'm yeah, going to keep going on mine. <laughs> yeah, go for it. <laughs> all right, so on to the show. Last time we heard all about the Berserkers and how they might have been bare-chested madmen, but probably they are more like maybe animal skin-wearing warriors, maybe not, maybe elite warriors that went into some kind of a battle trance. You know, go back to that. We did the whole treatment right. in the last episode, right? It's been um, established that they are badasses. Yes, That's however, the through line, <laughs> the thread connecting them all is they were badasses. They're, they're badasses, yes. and most of what we think of as berserkers is yeah. yeah. It is hard to tell because all the stories that feature them are written in the Christian perspective, and they may very well have been victims of a Christian propaganda game. Yeah. Yeah. They almost always turn out as the baddies that the hero takes down in the story. But, nevertheless... We're going to hear some stories today, and some of them are going to have berserkers, and it's going to be good. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I want to pick up a lot of dislocated jaws off the floor after yes. this episode. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So today we're going to go deeper, deeper, deeper to get a sense of the world of the berserkers that they lived in. Whoever they were, whatever they were, you know, this is the Viking world that they belonged to. Got stories and snippets from Old Norse literature, running the gamut of Viking life and society. And Andre, mm -hmm. it, we're going to follow our typical style here where I'm going to let you choose oh, the stories that you want to hear first, and we'll see how many of them we get through. I've got six to choose from. But there's an extra little twist today. Ooh. First of all, I'm going to give you a perspective to take from. It's not role-playing, but I'll give you a little character. Okay. Okay. And then also, these stories are going to take us across the expanse of the Viking realm, from Scandinavia to, in the east, the Rus, modern-day Russia, hmm. and all the way on the other direction to Iceland. And you're going to choose these stories randomly, and when you hit a new location, it's going to be like, bing, you've made it to a new realm. Oh, wow, okay. And then I'll explain a little bit about the Vikings in that realm, hmm. and then we'll go on with the story. Great. What, yeah. if, what if, I mean, can I just die of dysentery before I get anywhere interesting? <laughs> yeah, or snake bite. <laughs> the spiking trail. <laughs> yes, or, yeah, or uh, cholera, yeah. Yeah, cholera, all of those. It really sucks when your Viking ship breaks down because of a broken wagon tongue. Yeah, then you yeah. have to hunt for whales. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So, first of all, I'm going to give you a perspective. Like I said, what you are going to be today is an outsider to the Viking culture. I want you to imagine that you're some kind of outsider traveling through the Viking lands. You can be, for example, Irish, you can be Frankish, you can be Arab, you can be whatever you choose, and you can be, profession-wise, you could be, say, a trader, a missionary, an ambassador, whatever. So I'll let you just take a moment that we'll edit out for the listener mm -hmm. just to come up with just a little perspective that'll just give you, like, this is my view onto the Viking world. I already got it. Okay, what is it? 
All right, so I'm going to take my page right out of the movie 13th Warrior. Yes. When the 13th Viking was uh, an Arab dude with a scimitar. Yep. yep. And so I'm just going to be an Arab dude with a scimitar. I'm like a, an errant uh, warrior or soldier from faraway uh, Arabia. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Very Which good. Was, what, what country would that have been at that time? Was this... Well, the Vikings made, in the East, the Vikings made their way as far south as the Byzantine Empire, which would have had contacts with the Arabs. Islam was around yep. by that time. Okay, so let's begin your journey. Right. Here are the six snippets that you can choose from, some of which are very short, others are pretty substantial. Your first choice is morning hygiene. <laughs> <laughs> your second choice is a Viking funeral. Third, take me out to the ball game. Fourth, a battle at sea. Hmm. Fifth, Gunhild has her way with Hrut. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, the duel and the magic sword. Oh, this is great. I love these. Kay. I love these. So here's my thought. Okay. Right? I probably was already just dismayed. I mean, when I reached just countries like probably even just the Byzantine Empire, mm -hmm. I was just like, wow, these guys are pretty backwards. <laughs> and as yeah. farther I get into Europe, the more I'm just like, how does anyone live like this? Their math doesn't even work. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> right. I think, is, this would have been the Muslim Golden Age, basically. Right, absolutely. Time, so, yeah. yeah, we're flourishing back then. Yeah, flourishing. And so I think I'm going to just wake up Wondering why I possibly came this far into barbarian lands, mm -hmm. and I am going to take a look at what the morning hygiene is like around here. Okay. Well, it's fortuitous that you do, and I don't know if you were suspecting this correlation or not, but this one actually comes from an Arab commentator oh. on the Vikings. Oh, wow, great. Ibn okay. Fadlan. So that guy okay. had the same misfortune that I have. He, he had exactly <laughs> the misfortune that you had. Okay, so bing, 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 this brings you into the Rus. So the Vikings in the east. Okay. That's the region that we're in right now. So just north of the Byzantine Empire in modern day Ukraine, and Russia. Okay, and I'm going to say a little bit about the Vikings in the east and then we'll have our snippet. Okay, so the Vikings obviously didn't only go west. They also went east, traveling in their longships down the Volga River. Because one of the cool things about a longship is not only could it go a ocean going, um, but it could, it also had like a short enough keel that they could mm. ride it right up to the coast, making them easy to make it easy to do hit and run raids. And they could even sail it up river. Mm. And in the case of Russia, they would take that sucker all the way through Russia on rivers like the Volga and whatnot. Wow. Yeah. Did, they, did these ships have like, it's basically, it's not, it's not the rudder at the back. It's like something on the bottom of the ship that just sticks down to stabilize it in the deeper water. That's the keel. Oh, so they just, yeah. they, okay, yes. And what the keel looks like is, you know what the, a shark fin looks like? Mm -hmm. Imagine that on the bottom. Oh, so they had that on the bottom of the ship. Yep, and the idea, as far as I understand it, is if a wind is blowing against your sail, exactly. causing your sh ship to tip in yes. one direction, the keel then is also pushing against the water, providing a counterbalancing force, yeah, so it's, it's harder to capsize you. Right. Okay, so anyway, they were able to penetrate deep into Russia, as far as like the Ukraine and modern day Turkey, which is the Byzantine Empire, that's where that was, with these longships through the rivers. And by and large, what they did here, rather than raiding, they carried a big stick, mind you, but rather than raiding, they mostly traded in the east. 
and uh, they actually ended up developing the economy quite a bit by founding towns along these rivers, and those little towns projected power, and eventually it kind of like brought the whole region sort of under their control or dominance Ooh. in a weird kind of like British Empire in India kind of way sure with the right. Dutch East India Company, or like if you think of like um, uh, in North America, the uh, the fur trapper explorers from France and Britain going up the Mississippi and whatnot. Yeah, kind of like that. The most famous of the uh, Vikings in the East were the Varangians. I'm not sure if I'm saying Is that like a Star Trek alien species? That's the Ferengi. (laughs) (laughs) Totally different, though. And they were traitors, too. (laughs) (laughs) But no, the Varangians. Right, right. uh, Which Varang, or Varangi, something like that, was what the Greeks called the Vikings. Hmm. And Greek was the language that was being spoken by the Byzantines. And they were so taken with these northern warriors that came down that they saw their fighting prowess, and the emperor actually hired a group of them to be his personal bodyguards. Mm. And that started the tradition of the Varangian Guard. Wow. Mm-hmm. And hopefully we'll get to talk about that in a upcoming series. Cool. Teaser. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that is the Vikings in the East. As a result of these ventures in the East, the Vikings, which Ibn Fadlan called the Rus, or rather the Rusia, Something to do with red, probably to do with the red color of their beards that would have stood out to him. And is this the source of the name, the name of the country, Russia, or is it just sound similar but different? It is the source, I believe. Okay, wow. Yeah. As a result of these ventures, they came in contact with Eastern peoples who wrote about them, such as this Muslim Ibn Fadlan. Hmm. So first, before I, I give the morning hygiene reaction, this is he gives a straight description of what the Vikings looked like for him. Here's how he describes them. I saw the Rusia when they had arrived on their trading expedition and had disembarked on the river Atil. I have never seen more perfect physiques than theirs. They are like palm trees, are fair and reddish, and do not wear the kurtog or the kaftan, garments that he's used to. The man wears a cloak with which he covers one half of his body, leaving one of his arms uncovered. Every one of them carries an axe, a sword, and a dagger, and is never without all of that which we have mentioned. Their swords are of the Frankish variety, with broad, ridged blades. Each man, from the tip of his toes to his neck, is covered in dark green lines, pictures, and such like. Sounds Hmm. like tattoos. Yeah, wow. Each woman has, on her breast, a small disc tied around her neck, made of either iron, silver, copper, or gold, in relation to her husband's financial and social worth. Hmm. Each disc has a ring, to which a dagger is attached, also lying on her breast. Around their necks, they wear bands of gold and silver. Whenever a man's wealth reaches 10,000 dirhams, which is an Islamic silver coin, Hmm. he has a band made for his wife. If it reaches 20,000 dirhams, he has two bands made for her. For every 10,000 more, he gives another band to his wife. Sometimes one woman may wear many bands around her neck, and the jewelry which they prize the most is the dark green ceramic beads which they have aboard their boats and which they value very highly. They purchase beads for a dirham apiece and string them together as necklaces for their wives. Hmm. So that's his description of what they looked like. So to be clear, he's saying that the women would walk around with a a pendant around their Mm -hmm. neck with a dagger stuck in it through a ring. That's what he saw. Hanging between their boobs, I'm guessing? Like like a cleavage dagger? Maybe. I mean, that's, yeah, you know, teach their own. 
I guess it could be over the top of like, I'm sure it's not over. in between, but it would be on the outside over like a dress that covers. I would guess it's over. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Garment. Okay. Okay, so now his morning hygiene description. Now keep in mind that Islam is all about cleanliness. Yeah. Like like you wash five times a day, right? So he focused on things that specifically stood out to his sensibilities and mm-hmm. maybe exaggerated, but nevertheless. <laughs> all right, here's what he says. Every day, the slave girl arrives in the morning with a large basin containing water, which she hands to her owner. He washes his hands and his face and his hair in the water. Then he dips his comb in the water and brushes his hair, blows his nose, and spits in the basin. There is no filthy impurity which he will not do in this water. (laughs) When he no longer requires it, the slave girl takes the basin to the man beside him, and he goes through the same routine as his friend. She continues to carry it from one man to the next until she has gone round everyone in the house, with each of them blowing his nose and spitting, washing his face and hair in the basin. (laughs) End quote. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Wow. So that is the morning hygiene of the Vikings as uh, Ibn Fadlan saw it. So it pays to be the first one up in the morning. We get the basin (laughs) first. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So your other choices are a Viking funeral, take me out to the ball game, a battle at sea, Gunhild has her way with Hrut, or the duel in the magic sword. You know, I have just witnessed one of the most gut-clenching displays of human habits that I've <laughs> ever witnessed in my life. I need a break from this. I am going to choose Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Take Me Out to the Ball Game! All right. Do 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 do. Made it to a new part of the Viking <laughs> world, Scandinavia. So I mean, I was so grossed out that I literally left <laughs> just, that region. just like, nope, I'm passing up the roofs entirely. <laughs> not knock the basin stops. over on the we're, way out. Yeah, we're driving overnight. <laughs> not going to stop at a motel. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I should have gotten to ground it <laughs> So, yeah. <laughs> so you, get, you enter Scandinavia, uh, which comprises Denmark, Sweden, and Norway. That's what I'm considering Scandinavia. Okay. Which all were separate kingdoms. And depending on what time in the Viking Age you're talking about, may not have been unified kingdoms at all. Hmm. Okay. By now you've gotten over at least some of your initial culture shock. Well, it doesn't sound like it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but nevertheless, you know, as much as you may have gotten accustomed to some of the ways of the Northmen, there are still many things that throw you for a loop. As you arrive in Scandinavia, you start to get a feeling for the structure of Norse society, which is divided into three classes. thralls. Carls and Jarls. That's slaves, freemen, and nobles. So the Jarls are the nobles. Exactly. Okay. Yep. The thralls are slaves, and they might be Slavic in origin, Irish, or other foreign descent, or they might just as well be just as Norse as the next guy, hmm. but just they've fallen into slavery. Right. Or been taken from, you know, the next village over that's under the, you know, control of a different Jarl or a different king. Hmm. Yep. And uh, so thraldom was like a major part of Viking society. Right. Yep. They performed much of the menial labor, but thraldom was not necessarily their lot for life. They could earn their freedom, in which case they would become freedmen, not quite fully empowered the same as a Carl, which is like a freeborn, but they were close. 
There's just minor differences in terms of the laws. I would, wasn't able to find the exact differences, but I know that they had some different rights. Hmm. Above the thralls is the wide middle class of freeborn, the carls. These might be farmers or landowners, merchants, craftsmen, and so on. They might be poor, they might be quite wealthy, and the spirit of independence just permeates this segment of society. And they might participate in government and local assemblies called things, which was a phenomenon across various Germanic cultures in Northern Europe. It was called dings? Things. Things, okay. Just like our modern English word thing, Got it. but different meaning. It meant an assembly, hmm. like a council. And as as a, a person who's basically not a thrall, you could go and you could speak um, in the assembly. Hmm. You also had to be a man. There well. were a lot of really <laughs> awesome things that women could do in, in the Viking world, but right. one that they couldn't do was speak at an assembly. Hmm. Yeah. So the, the principle here at the thing was one man, one vote. In practice, it probably turned out much more like influential people had a lot more influence than kind of more like an oligarchy than a democracy, but nevertheless, the principle is hmm. aiming for democracy, right? Right. Egalitarianism, at least. Finally, the highest rung in society in Scandinavia is the Jarls and the kings. And I'm lumping them into really one class because the distinction between them was really not that much. Jarl is cognate with the English Earl. Right. King is, in Old Norse, it's actually konung. Hmm. It's cognate with king. But in like the, the early Viking age, it really depended just on like how much power you could exert. A king might only be able to control his own little domain that he had, and then the next valley over might be under the control of a Jarl that mm. might have an area that could exert more power and be even more powerful than the king. Mm. So it's like kings and Jarls, it was vague exactly who was the top dog at the time. Okay. Yeah. You may be a king who owed allegiance to other kings, too. It was very much a kind of like a tribal negotiate our relationship on a day-to-day -day basis kind it, of a thing. It's interesting. It almost seems seems reminiscent of just the free market in capitalism. It's like, yeah. there's all these companies out there, there's nothing saying that you can't be the biggest, most dominant company, but you're going to have to beat everybody else. Yep. And so like based on, I'm assuming in this case, with the Arles and Kings, it would be how many men you have under your control, how much land you've managed to take and hold, as opposed to just like rampaging through. That is correct. Okay. And when they talk about some of the early kings of Norway or mm -hmm. of Sweden, they'll talk about the next king of Norway or Sweden after that and say he had to conquer the country again. <laughs> you know, you <laughs> right, just didn't, right. you know, people didn't just follow you just because, oh, you're the king of Norway. Right. I'm a Norwegian. I'm going to follow you. Nope. It's like, I think I can take you down. Yeah. I'm going to do it. Yeah. Like that last guy who ruled with an iron thumb is gone. So like, <laughs> I'm just going to go with thumbs and a yeah. fist. But like, so now why not? I'll just take right. my chances. I'm breaking yeah. off. Yeah. 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 Now, as for the women, in Scandinavian society. You find that, as in most places, they are subordinate to the men, but nevertheless, they are surprisingly headstrong hmm. for your Muslim Arabic sensibilities. <laughs> I mean, I'm still which, getting over the fact that they're not all covering their hair, I'm assuming. You're probably getting over that, yep. And you thought yeah, you were pretty cool in terms of, like, gender equality, because early Islam was also kind of a step ahead of most of Europe hmm. in terms of, like, women's rights and stuff. Right. But when you get to Viking society, it's like, these ladies got spunk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. They frequently goad their men onto battle. They, if somebody uh, kills or injures them, you can claim wear guild for them equal to a man or Ooh. maybe more 
it was very common in Germanic societies that the women would actually have a higher uh, wear guild price, sometimes as much as double. And a wear guild is like the amount that the your, amount... your family is paid if you are injured or killed? Is that the idea? Exactly. Okay. Like it's compensation and it's a way to buy you off so you don't have to then kill them as vengeance. And the amount is, I'm assuming, based on status or something. Yep. Yeah. So this, in theory, the woman's uh, wear guild price is based on her status, which is identical to her husband's. It's not less than her husband. Yes. Okay. Wow. That's, yeah. yeah that's something. Which is a contrast, if I remember right, from when we were going through our medieval geish series, mm-hmm. I believe the women's whatever we called it, the, it, the in price In that case, it was, was the half. honor price. It was, it was, I think it was, I think it might have been half of her brothers, which would be equal to the amount of like, I think that's right. Like she should be marrying someone who's about the same honor price as her, as her brothers, basically. I think that's the way it went. Yeah. So, yeah. uh, so a contrast even to the Irish there. Yeah. Well, uh, this is something I want to, I'm just going to mention, because I think this really bears pointing out. Mm-hmm. So that many of the seeming freedoms or advantages or privileges that women had in some of these societies really fed back into a way to stabilize society as being patriarchal and keeping women in a subordinate role. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of these things, I mean, obviously the equal, the equal price, the equal wear guild price, that's just good. That's, you know, great. If the wear guild is a system, it's good to have an equal price. Cool. But like a lot of things like, yeah, they would egg their husbands on into battle. That's cool in the sense that they had some indirect power they could wield. They could get their husband to do something and, you know, maybe even provoke a, a battle that's in their favor. But their only method of power is through their husband. Yeah. And very yeah. similar in a lot of the stories where you'll have, you know, badass warrior women show up or you'll have goddesses that are very, uh, you know, badass seeming and, and seem to be sort of spunky and feministic. Um, a lot of times these were roles that were extolled in myth and in mm-hmm. religion. And then the idea that an actual woman would do that was not allowed at all. It was yeah. the idea that we can venerate the feminine or venerate women in this context and show them having power. And then they'll feel, you know, it sort of, it sort of helps the system keep running the way it is where we don't actually have to give any women any real power. Yeah, so. and that's true. Yep, and that's true. We will get into all of that when we get to our badass women episode. Yes, excellent. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to say about women in the Viking world, though, is that it was not unheard of for a famous woman's children to go by her name rather than their father's. So normally you would take your father's name as your last name. It's called a patronymic. It's just different from a family name where you're literally, whatever your father's name, it's so-and-so's son. Right. Right. So my father's name is Edgar, so I would be Brandon Edgarson. Right. Right. Where it's not unheard of for a woman to be famous enough for example, Queen Gunhild of Norway, who we're going to hear about eventually today, her sons were not called Eric's sons. They were called Gunhaldersons. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So take your mom's name. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Okay. So now we're a snippet. Take me out to the ball game. So this comes from Egil Saga, which I know that you are a particular <laughs> fan of. Yes. <laughs> okay. So Egil is the son of the berserker Skolagrim, and Egil has inherited his father's berserkerness. Here, Egil and his father are playing a kind of ball game called Knotlaker, or something like that. Knotlaker. Okay. Knotlaker. <laughs> no one knows exactly how this game went. We don't have like any text that says, like, these are the rules. But what I've gathered from scattered passages is that It's some kind of a game that's played in teams with a ball and a bat. 
and it seems to maybe involves some form of keep away because sometimes it says the team had the ball like all day oh, and wow. it pissed off the other team so mm. bad that kind of a situation <laughs> so the object seems at least partially to be to gain and keep control of the ball keep it away from the other team also intimidation and violence seems to be a big part of it it is not at all unheard of to get injured or even killed while playing Kanat Laker wow okay so Here's a snippet from Eagle's saga. At the age of 12, Eagle was so well-developed that few grown men, however big and strong, could beat him at games. In the winter he turned 12, Eagle competed frequently in games. He and Thord Granason, a strong 20-year-old, were often pitted against Skullagrim, his own father. On one occasion, late in the winter, a ball game, Knotlaker, was held at Sandvik, south of Borg. Eagle and Thord were playing against Skullagrim, and the game was going in their favor because Skullagrim was tiring. Old man, can't keep up with the young'uns. However, in the evening, the going got tougher for Eagle and Thord since after sunset, Skullagrim became stronger. (laughs) So it's something to do with his berserker powers. After hours, (laughs) maybe he takes a little bit of the something-something from the liquor cabinet. (laughs) He gets stronger when it gets dark out. He grew so strong that he was able to pick Thord up and throw him to the ground so hard that every bone in his body was broken and he died instantly. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Don't play with that anymore. <laughs> exactly. He's that kind of dad. <laughs> <laughs> then Skolagrim seized Eagle, his own son, right? Yep. One of Skolagrim's slave women, Thorgerd Brock, had nursed Eagle in his childhood. and She was a big woman and as strong as a man and very skilled in magic. Skolagrim, she said. You're raging like a berserk against your own son. So here it's actually showing an actual rage, you know, for the berserker. Yeah. So sometimes they do show that. Right. Skolagrim let Eagle go then and grabbed at her, but she broke away and took to her heels with Skolagrim right behind her. They ran to the very tip of Digranes, where she leapt from the cliff into the sea. Skolagrim then pitched a huge rock at her, The rock struck her between the shoulder blades, and neither she nor the rock ever resurfaced. Wow. The place is now called Brock's Sound. When they got back to Borg later that evening, Eagle was in a rage. So now he's in a rage. (laughs) He's like, the worst family to hang out with. Killed my nurse, Dad! I hate you! I hate you! (laughs) Eagle was in a rage, and when Skolagrim and the others sat down at the dinner table, he didn't take his place. Eagle didn't. Eagle, didn't. Okay. Eagle didn't take his place at the dinner table in his right. family house. Right. Then he strode into the room and went straight up to the man who managed Skolagrim's workers and estate, <laughs> his hired man or whatever. This man was very dear to Skolagrim, and Eagle killed him with a blow and then went to his seat. Wow. Skolagrim said nothing, and the matter rested there. But afterwards, Eagle and Skolagrim had not a word either good or bad, to say to one another. And this state of affairs lasted all winter. <laughs> so, wow. This yeah. Is, yeah. Awkward. <laughs> yeah, awkward. Also, probably a good premise for, like, a situation comedy. Like, 
the Berserker family. <laughs> oh, the hijinks they get up to this week. <laughs> I think you'd have to have like a cartoonish element though, where like the the nurse and the yeah they just pop back up. Yeah, like they're fine at the end of the episode. <laughs> yeah, and, like, have an ice ice bag on their head or something. Yeah, just like yeah. a big welt or something. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she comes back with like seaweed on her, and she's like, "Oh, it's collagram." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that is the end of that snippet. All right, your remaining choices. So I'm just going to say that I'm sitting here blogging uh, at my little <laughs> travel blog about like all my travels uh-huh. to far away Vikinglandia. Uh-huh. Like, about like, okay, guys, I, we all know I started to really hate this place, but mm-hmm. like, this was so cool. You got to see this <laughs> ball game they play. Yeah. <laughs> all right, your remaining choices are a Viking funeral, a battle at sea, Gunhild has her way with Hrut. Or the duel and the magic sword. Um, I think that I'm in the I'm in the mood now. I've been impressed with these berserkers. I'm getting a little fired up. I see what the the one thing their culture's got is violence, and they're good at it. So I want to check out this sea battle. I might, might okay. board some ships here. Okay, this is also in Scandinavia. Great, a battle at sea. So the Norsemen were practically born in the water, right? You think about their geography. It's like very rugged, and you've got a lot of coastline. It's full of fjords. The easiest way to get around is by boat. So pretty much everybody, unless you live way inland, is definitely going to know how to navigate. Hmm. And, you know, you probably are from the time before you can even remember, you know, you've been on a boat. So the Norse naturally then excel at naval military affairs, right? Um, Now, of course, the Vikings are famous for their longship raids against other lands, terrorizing the coasts of England, Ireland, France, and so on. But here the question is, how do Vikings fight each other at sea? That was an interesting thing that I had to research into. So Viking against Viking, longship against longship. What does that kind of battle look like? Well, according to Patty Griffith, who wrote uh, The Viking Art of War, naval battles were fought actually kind of a lot like land battles, but just on the water. So ships would form up in these long lines. (laughs) Yep. Pretty much like a classic land battle. And then they would just head at each other. Wait, so it was a line sort of like head to tail of the ships, bow to stern. Nope. Not, not a line nope. like side shoulder by to shoulder. Side. Shoulder oh, really? to shoulder. Yep. So, so they're all pointed the same walls direction. That are just on course to just smack yep. into each other. Yeah. Kind of like the shield wall thing. Yeah, I guess so. But with ships, right? And believe it or not, a line of ships may even choose to lash themselves together with rope to make their line more stable. And usually you would do this if you felt that you were on the defensive end. Hmm. It was a way to kind of like present the tightest uh, amount of defensive power Hmm. in one place and kind of prevent the ability of the enemy to kind of get between you and flank your various different ships. Hmm. If you're all in one tight line, you've only got a flank on the right, flank on the left, everything else is protected. So, uh, and then what you do is you would just go at each other. And one such battle takes place in Gretesaga. And I love this battle almost more for the names in it <laughs> than for the battle itself. Anyway, this the story tells of a time when the first king, quote-unquote, of Norway, Harald Fairhair, who is here called Harald Lufa, <laughs> like a Lufa sponge, hmm. and it's translated as, some translated as Fairhair, but I've also seen it translated as unkempt. So like, kind of like Harold crazy hair, <laughs> kind of like Harold, like gross hair, wild hair, oily hair or whatever. I don't know. So at this point in the story, 
Harold is still fighting his way to the top, trying to subdue all the different Jarls and other little kings underneath him. A great many opposed him, and they met him in battle in a fjord called Hafersfjord. And among Harold's opponents were Thorir Haklong, which Haklong means long chin, <laughs> Thorir long chin, and Onund Treefoot, who gets his nickname in this actual story. We'll see it happen. Okay, so, the quote. Onund positioned his ship on one side of Thorir Haklong's ship, and this was pretty well in the middle of the fleet. King Harald attacked Thorir Haklong's ship, for Thorir was a great berserk and a fearless man. There was the toughest fighting there on both sides. So, Thorir's a berserk, we learn. Okay. Now, this is another naval tactic that we find here. So, Harald attacks the berserker first, because he knows if he doesn't take him out fast, he's going to wreak havoc on his fleet. Mm. Okay? And the berserkers were the shock troops of Viking naval battles, mm. it seemed. And if I remember correctly, the being in the front of the ship and the prow was like a position of honor. Like you wanted your best guys up there? Yes. Okay. Yes. Because you position them, like, just like you said, you position them in the front of your ships in the forecastle, which is not quite the very front, but the very front you can't really stand on. Okay. So yeah. it's the closest thing to the front where you can have a decent chance of fighting off of. And if I'm remembering my being scolded by sailors properly, it's actually foxhole, right? It's not I think so, and I saw it written with all these apostrophes, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not doing that. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so, forecastle is what I'll go with. But <laughs> you're, you're being lis- mocked on Reddit right Listeners, now. scald me if you will. Yeah. Scold me if you will. No, I think you should scald, <laughs> scald, scald him. That's more appropriate actually, if you Actually, just, just scald. Just scald him. <laughs> okay. And Harold, in fact, does have berserkers of his own. So let's see how he uses them. Hmm. The king urged on his berserks to the attack. They were called wolf skins, and no weapons could penetrate them. And when they stormed forward, nothing could withstand them. Thorir fought bravely and fell on board his ship with great valor. So here, again, you're seeing shock troops at the front of the attack used to like break through the enemy line as kind of like the spearhead hmm. of the attack. So if you're defending, your berserkers in the forecastle will take the brunt of the blow, kind of like the meat shields of the Viking Navy. And if you're attacking, they'll be like your shock troops to break through the enemy line, right? So what happens next after the initial charge now? It says, Then the ship was cleared from stem to stern, and its moorings cut. Then it drifted back among the other ships. Here we're seeing the goal of what you're trying to do in the course of the battle. What you want to do is you want to board the enemy ship, and then you fight in like hand-to-hand melee combat aboard the ship, and once you clear it of all the enemies, then you've got the ship. Great. And at that point, you're facing a choice. You can either make off with the ship, in which case, well, the enemy has one less ship, and we've got some spoils, so pretty good. Pretty good. Or you can go on to the next ship and try to do that to the next one. So you're like, do you want to push your chances? If you're going to choose to go after another ship, mm-hmm. you pretty much have to like abandon the one you just took, right? Yep. Okay. Unless you just leave some of your guys behind, but then you'd be losing some of your fighting force. Right. So, yeah. Okay. Yep. So then what comes next in the story? It says, then the king's men attacked Onun's ship. So they did go on to the hmm. next ship. He stood in the fore part of the ship and fought bravely. Then the king's men said, This man in the bows is attacking hard. Let's give him some remembrance of us to show that he has been in some danger. 
Onan was standing with one foot on the gunwale, which is the side of the ship, and striking at someone, and at the same time, someone struck at him. They must have rolled the same initiative or something. <laughs> <laughs> Attacks come at the same time. Right. And as he parried the blow, he leaned backwards. Then one of the king's men struck at Onan's leg below the knee and cut off his foot. Ooh. Oh, no. Remember his nickname? Onan Treefoot. Oh. <laughs> What's going to happen next? <laughs> so he just got his leg cut off. So what happens next in the story is Onan is carried out of the fight. And like his mash helicopter comes and like takes him away, right? And he's boarded onto the next ship in the line. And after that, the whole defending line breaks. And the defenders have to retreat. And they sail off. And just any man for themselves, right? And then it, finally it says, Thrand and other Vikings then got themselves away, each as best as they could, and sailed away to the west. Onund went with him, and so did Balki and Halvard Sugander. Sugander means sucker. So his name is Halvard Sucker. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to wonder what kind of connotation that had in that uh, language. Right. That was like, I know. this is nickname material. <laughs> There's a lot of them that are really keepers. <laughs> right. Onund recovered, so he didn't die at least, and walked all his remaining life with the help of a wooden leg. Because of this, he was called Onund Wooden Leg, or Onund Treefoot. Yeah. So that is how the Vikings fought each other at sea. All right. So now you've got a Viking funeral. Gunhild has her way with Hrut, or the duel and the magic sword. I think that since we just had a battle, mm -hmm. there's probably some fallen. I think I'm going to go observe uh, final rites here and do the okay. funeral. The Viking yeah. funeral. Okay. So um, you are heading back to the Rus now. So maybe you're all oh, over the place. Yeah, I don't. So I, maybe you've got your trade done, and it's time to come home. And maybe you're recalled by whoever you're, is in charge of you back home. Yeah, and I feel like after the ball game and everything, I feel like I've sort of. Um, I think I'm ready to handle their disgusting morning hygiene ways. Okay, so. this is quite a substantial one. Okay, but it is worth it. Let me tell you. So a Viking funeral. Ibn Fadlan, the same Arab writer as the morning hygiene one, right? Mm -hmm. He writes, I was told that when their chieftains die, the least they do is to cremate them. I was very keen to verify this when I learned of the death of one of their great men. They placed him in his grave and erected a canopy over it for ten days until they had finished making and sewing his funeral garments. In the case of a poor man, they build a small boat, place him inside, and burn it. In the case of a rich man, they gather together his possessions and divide them into three, one-third for his family, one-third to use for his funeral garments. So there's some pretty wow. fancy duds. The Moist would not approve of this. No. no. <laughs> Shout out to our Moism series. <laughs> yep. And one-third with which they purchase alcohol, which they drink on the day when his slave girl kills herself and is cremated what? together with her master. What? Yep. Wow. He also says they are addicted to alcohol, which they drink wait, night. Wait, can I go back? Yeah. Does he have a wife? I mean, like, why is the slave girl the one who has to do that? It's the culture. I mean, first of all, it's, it's just terrible either way, but like, oh my God, wow. <laughs> yeah. So he also says they are addicted to alcohol, which they drink night and day. Sometimes one of them dies with the cup still in his hand. Wow. And remember, in Muslim culture, you're not supposed to drink at all. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there's a whole... He goes into the whole ritual of this. When their chieftain dies, 
his family asks his slave girls and slave boys, who among you will die with him? And some of them reply, I shall. <laughs> Having said this, it becomes incumbent upon the person, and it is impossible ever to turn back. Hmm. So when you're saying it, you are oathing that this is going to happen. Hmm. Should that person try to turn back, he is not permitted to do so. It is usually slave girls who make this offer. Hmm. That all seems very suspicious. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you're, you're questioning, like, wait, did I find myself onto a certain kind of political website that might be a silo that's only telling me what I want to hear? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's a good point, too. I wasn't necessarily thinking that they don't do this, although that's an excellent point. It could be that this is a little bit propagandish. Mm -hmm. But I was also thinking, like, I, I mean, I know culture is a strong force and that people do all kinds of things that might not be good for themselves because it's expected. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I'm a slave girl, I'm a slave boy, I'm going to be like, I volunteer to die with my master. Like, what really happened? Like, who came in the night before and like, listen, if nobody volunteers tomorrow, we're taking all your kids, you know, or something. I don't know. Well, maybe. But you also have to remember that slavery back in the day, while always bad, right. is not the way we think of slavery in America. And I yes. know that you have made the same point yourself, sure, sure. so it's no news to you. Yeah. But it's worth remembering, back in the day, first of all, you m you might have tra treated your slave poorly, but you might very well have treated him like a member of your own family. This is true. Not equal rights, mm -hmm. no. Not probably as much good food at the table. You had to do a whole lot more work. Yeah, all of that. Right. But you might have treated them pretty much like a human being, not like a subspecies. Like yeah. A, you know. Secondly, this is an honor culture. And right. even thralls have honor. Hmm. And what is the most honorable thing that you can do as a thrall than die for your master? Well, that makes sense. Yeah. So that's human, my Human take. psychology is messed up. It is. <laughs> I am not just We are all that. sick puppies. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so once uh, a slave girl, for example, volunteers to do this, here's what proceeds. Every day, the slave girl would drink alcohol and would sing merrily and cheerfully. So she gets a good package, like a, reti like a retirement bonus. On the day when he and the slave girl were to be burned, I arrived at the river where his ship was. To my surprise, I discovered that it had been breached and that four planks of birch and other types of wood had been erected for it. Around them, wood had been placed in such a way as to resemble scaffolding. Then the ship was hauled and placed on top of this wood. So oh, it seems okay. to be like mounted on a scaffold. Like dry docking the ship. The ship. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and I gather that also from what says later that there's some kind of pavilion that's also set up on the ship. And people also have their own pavilions set up in the area. So mm -hmm. many pavilions. That'll help make sense of what you hear that the rest here. They advanced, going to and fro around the boat, uttering words which I did not understand, while he was still in his grave and had not been exhumed. So they buried him first. Yeah. Then they produced a couch and placed it on the ship, covering it with quilts made of Byzantine silk brocade and cushions made of Byzantine silk brocade. Then a crone arrived, whom they called the Angel of Death. That's what he says, which I I'm like sure it. is, you know, his own word for it. So I, yep. is that a Valkyrie that right, they called yeah. <laughs> it or, or, or what? You know, yeah. what? I don't know. And she spread on the couch the coverings that we have mentioned. She is responsible for having his garments sewn up and putting him in order. And it is she who kills the slave girls. Hmm. I myself saw her, a gloomy, corpulent woman, 
neither young nor old. Wow. It's interesting, a crone, neither young nor old. I just automatically assume old. Old, right, yeah. Right. Maybe I, it just means unmarried. I was wondering if it means a single woman, like an old maid. Yeah, or if know. it could also, I mean, I also wonder if just the definition of crone was younger than we, you know, I think of like a 70-year-old, right? right? But they might think of like, oh yeah, you're 40. So yep, you could look crone. a little young still, but you're a crone. Yeah. Yeah. When they came to his grave, they removed the soil from the wood and then removed the wood, exhuming him still dressed in the izar, that's his word for the garment, in which he had died. I could see that he had turned black because of the coldness of the ground. So they exhume him, they dress him up, and they lay him on the pavilion on the ship then after that, along with numerous offerings, including horse flesh. Remember that when we get to our role-playing episode. Right. <laughs> and the, are the bodies of the slave girls on the ship as well? They're not dead yet. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we'll get to see how the crone kills them. Oh, yes. Yes, excellent. Okay. Meanwhile, the slave girl who wished to be killed was coming and going, entering one pavilion after another. The owner of the pavilion would have intercourse with her and say to her, tell your master that I have done this purely out of love for you. <laughs> yup. <laughs> <laughs> what were you saying about reinforcing the patriarchal culture? Yeah, right. Oh, it's a really progressive culture. Uh, no, but I'm, I'm also just amazed that like... Everybody thinks of a Viking funeral as like you you cremate the person burning them on a ship, but like that's the least interesting part of this funeral. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Next, they take the girl to a structure that looks like a door frame, and they lift her above it three times. And each time that they lift her up, she says something. And then Ibn Fadlan continues, I quizzed the interpreter about her actions, and he said, the first time they lifted her, she said, behold, I see my father and my mother. The second time, she said, Behold, I see all of my dead kindred seated. The third time, she said, Behold, I see my master seated in paradise. Paradise is beautiful and verdant. He is accompanied by his men and his male slaves. He summons me, so bring me to him. I like how he's accompanied by his male slaves, but like she's the only one getting axed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. They're, they're like, well, argh, argh, maybe they were already they're dead earlier. Yeah, they might have died I, with I, him in battle, or yeah, who I knows? Yeah, I don't know. Of course. I don't know. Well, previous slaves. Also, on. it's interesting that he uses the word paradise. I wonder if the word is Valhalla that he's trying to. I wonder that too. But I, maybe not. Right. I don't know. And this account is about pagan Vikings. It's not about like Christianized Clearly. Vikings. Yeah, this is okay. not a Christian funeral. You don't, you don't do this and just say in Jesus's name. No. Nope. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. She then sacrifices a hen the slave girl, and throws it onto the ship. She removes two bracelets and gives them to the crone, the angel of death. Removes, Crone's got to get paid. Mm-hmm, yeah. Removes two anklets and gives them to the slave girls who waited upon her. Hmm. And finally, she is lifted onto the ship, but not yet brought into the ship's pavilion. At this point, she's really looking for a way to get out of this deal. She's like, the alcohol <laughs> was nice. I got yeah. a lot of booty, but... Yeah. Uh... <laughs> now it's time to cut and run. Yeah. <laughs> it's got to be a smaller ship on here somewhere. I can just, yeah. Ibn Fadlan writes... The men came with their shields and sticks and handed her a cup of alcohol over which she chanted and then drank. The interpreter said to me, thereby she bids her female companions farewell. She was handed another cup, which she took and chanted for a long time, while the crone urged her to drink it and to enter the pavilion in which her master lay. I saw that she was befuddled and wanted to enter the pavilion, but she had only put her head into the pavilion while her body remained outside it. The crone grabbed hold of her head 
and dragged her into the pavilion, entering it at the same time. The men began to bang their shields with the sticks so that her screams could not be heard and so terrify the other slave girls, who would not then seek to die with their masters when it came time for them to volunteer. Six men entered the pavilion and all had intercourse with the slave girl. Is she dead already? No, not yet. Oh, but she was screaming. She's screaming, but not dead yet. Ooh. They laid her down beside her master, and two of them took hold of her feet to her hands. The crone called the angel of death, placed a rope around her neck in such a way that the ends crossed one another, and handed it to two of the men to pull on it. She advanced with a broad-bladed dagger and began to thrust it in and out between her ribs. Now here, now there while the two men throttled her with the rope until she died. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. So I was going to raise my glass. When you started this story, I was like, oh, this is a funeral story. I'm going to raise my glass to Uh the Viking who gets burned and is widowed. No, after that. I'm going to raise this glass to the slave girl. the slave girl. So sorry you went through this. But, I mean, wow. The fact that you volunteered for this. Skull. Skull. (laughs) So for the rest of the ritual, then the deceased next of kin approached and took hold of a piece of wood and set fire to it. He walked backwards with the back of his neck to the ship, his face to the people, with the lighted piece of wood in one hand and the other hand on his anus, being completely naked. (laughs) He ignited the wood that had been set up under the ship after they had placed the slave girl whom they had killed beside her master. Then the people came forward with sticks and firewood. Each one carried a stick, the end of which he had set fire to, and which he threw on top of the wood. The wood caught fire, and then the ship, the pavilion, the man, the slave girl, and all it contained. A dreadful wind arose, and the flames leapt higher and blazed fiercely. And that's the end of the snippet. Did he get in the water? It doesn't say so. Not oh. in this case. Oh, wow. Now, I'm sure there's a whole lot of variation. Sure. These are the Vikings in the Rus. And, you know, the Viking world, especially in the early Viking age, was tribal, not unified, mm. a lot of variety. So this doesn't necessarily represent Viking funerals all across sure. the Viking world. Yeah. But it's the only, like, really good account that I know of that we have. Mm. And so it's like, hmm, you know? Right. <laughs> Oof. Yeah, that was a doozy, huh? That is a doozy. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I think I think after something like that, I uh-huh. would need to try to bring the mood up a little bit. So mm-hmm. I'd like to see the what is it, the seduction of Hroot? Yes. Queen Gunhild has her way with Hroot. Has her way with Hroot. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Okay. This is the last snippet from Scandinavia. So you're going I'm back, to, back and forth. Back to Scandinavia. I thought I was ready for the Rus again, but I was not, and I'm leaving. So you had gone back. You were headed back to the Arabic land. Then you realized you left your wallet behind in the pub. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like to think I still had some Byzantine silks to sell, and then I saw what they would use them for, and I was like, oh, no. no. <laughs> okay, so in this story, which comes from Njal's saga, the king of Norway's mother, Queen Gunhild, hears of the arrival of an Icelandic youth named Hrut, who has come to Norway to seek to claim his inheritance. She sends a messenger to invite this Hrut and his uncle Olzer to be brought before her and the king. At first, Hrut is unsure whether it is wise to answer the call. It seems a little fishy, 
just arriving and then suddenly the queen wants you for something, uh, you know, seems like a trap, right? right? <laughs> also, he's already betrothed to a woman back home, back in Iceland, oh, according to the, rest of the early part of the story. Yeah. So if she's looking for a boy toy, it might not be good to go, right? Mm. But his uncle Olzer says he's heard of this Gunhild and, and what she is like and says, yeah, we've got no choice. We have to go. <laughs> huh. If we refuse her call, she's going to drive us out of Norway. But if we do go, she's going to be our friend. So we should probably go. Yeah, that's a pretty clear choice. Yeah. <laughs> so they do. And the queen's messenger who's inviting them, then gives them some fine robes to wear. She's already playing dress up fine crossless robes for them to wear. <laughs> right? <laughs> and says that Hrut must ask the king to become one of his retainers. Hmm. And then here's where we pick up the story. When they reached the hall where the king sat drinking, Hrut led the way and greeted him. My lord, said Hrut, I ask your permission to join your retinue and become one of your followers. The king was silent. Then Gunhild spoke. I think this man is offering you a great honor, she said. In my opinion, if there were many men like him in your retinue, it would be well manned. <laughs> <laughs> is he an intelligent man? asked the king. He is both intelligent and energetic, <laughs> said Gunhild. And then the king says to Hrut, I gather that my mother wants you to have the position you asked for. Out of respect for our dignity and the customs of the land, however, you must come back again in two weeks' time, and then you will become a member of my retinue. Until then, my mother will look after you. So the queen is the king's mother. Exactly. Okay, got it. Yeah. Not, yeah. Yeah. She's the, yeah, king's yeah. She's the queen mom. Right. Yeah. Of course, Gunhild is delighted with this. And you can just imagine a coy smile on her face. And then she says to her servant, go with them to my house and prepare a splendid feast for them. And then they went with the servant, who led them to a stone-built hall decorated with the finest tapestries. Gunhild had her high seat there. And then the servant says, now you will see that I told you the truth about Gunhild. Here is her high seat. You may sit on it, and you may stay sitting on it even when she herself comes in. Then the servant provided the feast for them. And then here's where we bring back the quotes. They had barely sat down when Gunhild came in. Hrut was about to leap up and greet her. Sit down, she said. As long as you are my guest, you must always sit on the seat. Then she sat down beside Hrut, and they drank together. In the course of the evening, Gunhild said, Tonight you shall lie with me in the upper chamber. There will be just the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> my, then, my sensibilities are just completely offended right now. Yeah. <laughs> and then Hrut says, You are the one who must make that decision. <laughs> 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 then they went to bed, and she locked the room from the inside. I like how it has a consent message. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they slept there that night, and in the morning they drank together. For the whole two weeks... The two of them lay on their own in the upper room. Wow. Then Gunhild said to the people in her household, Your days will be numbered if you say a word about Ruth and me. <laughs> 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 Finally, after the appointed waiting period, Ruth became a retainer of the king. 
he goes on an adventure and he wins his inheritance and that's a whole big part of the story hmm. and he enjoys great favor with the king not to mention with the queen yeah clearly but eventually he starts to get a little homesick you know he's got a lady back there and so he yearns to go home when the spring arrived he became very quiet gunhild noticed this and when they were alone she asked are you depressed hoot as the saying goes said fruit Things are always better at home than abroad. Do you want to go back to Iceland? She asked. I do, he replied. Have you got a woman out there? She asked. No, <laughs> replied Ruth. I'm sure you do, she said, and at that they broke off the conversation. Ruth <laughs> presented himself to the king, greeted him. The king asked, What do you want, Ruth? My lord. I wish to ask you for leave to return to Iceland, said Hrut. Will you be more honored there than here? <laughs> asked the king. No, replied Hrut. But everyone must do what he is destined to do. You're in a tug of war with a strong man, said Gunnhild. Give him permission to travel wherever he wants. <laughs> she runs this court. She runs the court. Yeah. She's the queen fucking mum. Wow. So the king lets him go. But before he leaves, Gunnhild takes Hrut aside one last time. Here is a gold ring I want to give you, she said, and slipped it onto his arm. I have received many fine gifts from you, replied Hrut. She put her arms around his neck, kissed him, and said, If I have as much power over you as I think I do, then I cast this spell on you. You will be unable to achieve sexual satisfaction. <laughs> with the woman you have chosen in Iceland, though you will be able to perform with other women. Now we're both going to be miserable because you weren't open and honest with me. Wow. Hrut laughed and went his way. <laughs> <laughs> we don't find out the fate of Hrut's tallywhacker. Do you want to know what happens? Oh, yeah, I do, yeah. He goes back to Iceland. He goes back to his fiancée, mm -hmm. her name is Un, and when they are, attempt to be intimate, she finds that his penis is too big to penetrate her. <laughs> <laughs> she, I like how they had to save his honor somewhere, like he's not impotent. He's just, <laughs> right. Yeah. He's got, his dong is too, too damn big. big. <laughs> right. He's got berserker dong. He's got berserker dong. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the end of the story. Wow. <laughs> wow, these these Viking stories are great. Yeah, love these. These are the cherry ones that I found, right? Of course, of they're course, selected, of course. highly curated. But these, yes, these are good. I have a question too. Yes, so I, I'm wondering if this is the same in in Viking culture, or if you know, when I was reading about Germanic culture, queens, Germanic queens actually played a very important role in maintaining stability, in the sense that since kings would often be dying and getting replaced, or people would be fighting over who'd get to be king. Um, and as you said, if somebody, you know, if the old king died, the new king got the job, everybody else might just rebel and just say, well, too bad, I'm not following yep. you. So the new king would typically marry the queen who had been married to the old king. And that would be a way of ensuring stability in the court and possibly pulling on some of her established relationships to not have the whole country fall to pieces. That makes sense. Yeah. 
it just stood out to me that the queen here was still around and an important figure, even though she's not the active queen. Like you said, she's the queen mother. You know, right. So the king is her son. Obviously, the son won't marry his mom, right. since the son managed to succeed his father. Mm-hmm. But the fact that she's still around at court and playing this very influential role. Yeah, well, the other thing, too, is that in Viking culture, if you were a wife and your husband died, you could inherit everything mm. that your husband had and right. just run it. Like a mad fucker. Great. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't necessarily go to like the next male kin along the line or whatever. Right. Like, yeah, you were the thing then. Yeah. You know? So, so. if you if you if you wanted any freedom, you wanted your husband to die as quickly as possible. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> right. Alright. So we've got one story left. The duel and the magic sword. Oh, excellent. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, I'm glad that we're ending on a magic sword story. Excellent. Yeah. Okay, so we go there? Yeah. Boo, 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 boo. We make it to Iceland. Oh, wow. I'm running as far from the roost as possible. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> he went the wrong direction. <laughs> they did not uh, tell me where the ship was going when I got on. They swore it was going straight back to the Byzantine. Well, it's kind of, you know, you've never used this particular metro transit system before, <laughs> and the number system is kind of yeah. weird, and they've got this, like, which direction. Yeah. Yeah. So. Okay, so finally, your journey takes you to the Far Islands. You voyage to the Orkneys off the coast of Scotland, further north to the Faroes Islands, and then finally to Iceland. As you approach the island, you are told of its mysteries. This short passage actually comes from Konungsskugia. (laughs) (laughs) I think I actually might have pronounced that right. You're doing a pretty good job with these. That means the king's mirror. It was one of those kind of texts where it's like, this is everything about how to behave, and it's given to the king, but everybody reads it, and you, know, learns how, you learn the virtues that way. Right. That kind of a text, okay. you know? Yeah. Okay. So it's describing various realms, one of which is Iceland. And it says, As for the ice, that is a feature of Iceland. And the name Iceland in Old Norse is Island, hmm. literally land of ice. Nice. I tend to think that it's the price Iceland has to pay for its proximity to Greenland. It says Greenland here, not Vinland. Mm. There was a word, Greenland, I think, in Old Norse. I don't know. Anyway, I mean, they, they got to Greenland, but it wasn't a great, to... oh, for like, sure. profitable place to be. So I can't imagine... Less so than Iceland, it seemed like. Yeah. But yeah, they but were eventually definitely... it was just abandoned. In... Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, it is because Iceland absorbs so much cold from Greenland and receives so little warmth from the sun that it has so much ice on its mountain ranges. But I'm not so sure what to say about the surfeit of fire that is to be found there, because it is a strange phenomenon. I have heard that there is a great amount of fire in Sicily, you know, in Italy, and that it burns both earth and vegetation. The fires of Iceland, however, do not consume earth or wood, even when those things are thrown into them. Instead, they consume stone and hard rock. And there is no stone or rock so hard that the fires will not melt it like wax or burn it like fatty oil. Now, since the Icelandic fire consumes only dead things and rejects what other fires feed on, (laughs) it may be called dead fire. And so it is very likely that the fire of Iceland is the fire of hell because everything (laughs) in hell is dead. <laughs> the logic here is that is Iceland. Wow, <laughs> that's pretty badass, huh? No, I'm assuming the fires are volcanic activity. Yeah, and I'm also assuming then that there's no basis for saying that if you threw wood into I it, it wouldn't it. burn. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. I'm sure that's just lore, yeah. you know. 
But nevertheless, that shows up in there and it's pretty badass. <laughs> okay. And remember that to help visualize this, Adam McKithern has given us a custom-made map for our use uh, of Iceland at the time, painstakingly researching the glaciers that he was talking about and also the volcanoes. Right. Yeah, so check that out on our website. Does he mark on the map which ones burn wood and which ones burn stone? <laughs> uh, he does not. <laughs> I didn't think to ask him. Come that. on, dude. <laughs> Thank you, Adam. Yeah. So you can see that at www.deadideas.net. Okay, back to the story. You are also told of the island's history and society. Iceland was only settled in the last century, maybe late 800s, by Norwegians fleeing the rising power of centralized kingship in Norway. They may have been some of those that we saw fight against Harold Fairhair in the naval battle, in the Battle at Sea story. They might have like been refugees that fled the centralized kingship in Norway to Iceland. When they arrived in Iceland, it was already inhabited by a small handful of Irish monks, but these either fled the incoming <laughs> I was Vikings. Say they leave immediately. <laughs> <laughs> either that or they were forced out. Yeah. We don't really know which. In any case, the intrepid Vikings discovered vast tracts of land in Iceland and claimed enormous estates. Sometimes one farmer would have an estate larger than a king would have back in Norway. Wow. As a result of this history of free-minded independent settlers, Iceland developed a rather different social structure than elsewhere in the Viking lands. Jarls and kings are nowhere to be found in Iceland. The nobles? Not there. None. Instead, all who are not slave, and even slaves they don't have very much of because the the geography is difficult to manage slaves. It's like very rugged. You don't have these large economies of scale and plantations. Mm. It's like difficult to supervise slaves. It just becomes generally more efficient just to have free men working for like you. Like if you put them. if you put a slave like in a hut across a mountain you can barely get to to manage yeah, X he's thousand just run acres. Off. Yeah, right. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. So it's just it's just overall more efficient cost wise to just pay the guy and have him work for you. Yeah. So they had slaves, but not as many as in the rest of Scandinavia. Mm. So all who were not slaves were free men then. That is the definition free of men slaves. And free <laughs> <laughs> but no nobles, right? Oh got it. Okay. Some among the free men and free women were Gothar. That's the plural, or Gothi is the singular, which literally means priest, um, but which is really more like a priest chieftain because they had both religious and secular governmental type of duties. And was this a, a Christian role or was this in the pre-Christian times? This was in the pre-Christian times. Okay, got it. So mm-hmm. it's like a... Okay, yeah. Okay. And then it carried over and was still around in the Christian times too. Would then the, the Gothar, is that the word? For the plural, yeah. Would they be Christian priests at that point as well as leaders? No, not necessarily at that point. They were just secular. Just secular, yeah. yeah. Okay, so these Gothar, they enjoyed no more privileges than other free men, but they did have special duties. On the religious end, they maintained the temples, and they hallowed the things, the governmental assemblies. And on the more secular end, they gathered at the Althing, and the, that was the largest assembly of all in Iceland. Kind of like the uh, like the super thing. <laughs> right. At the all thing, these Goldar collectively comprised the Logret or Law Council. Hmm. So they were like um, Parliament or they were like uh, Congress for the island. And by this means, the Icelanders got by just fine without a king. They hmm. just had these chieftains. And thank you very much. We don't need nobles. We're fine. Is there any information on, on how they came up with this system? It just seems astonishing to me that a bunch of people come out of yarldoms and kingdoms and show up with, and they just like, yeah, we just made a republic. 
Yeah, there's a whole big long story to go into. Okay. I didn't really dig into that, so I don't know if I could authoritatively just like extemporaneously talk about right. it. But basically, it's like you've got a bunch of settlers. They're all grabbing whole bunches of land, and they've got this free-minded spirit. Nobody wants to be under any other one of them. Mm. And the easiest way to just kind of like be at peace with each other is just be like, look, we're all equal, right. and we're just going to like get together and just kind of decide how things are going to be, all right? right? And the Lothar, were they chosen locally by the people they were, that they were the chieftains of? Or the Gothar? Sorry, the Gothar. <laughs> That's a different word. Sorry, the, the Gothar. Go were yeah. they chosen like by the people they were chieftains of? Or were they just like whoever owned the land in that yes area? Yes and no. Okay. So you would inherit or you could even purchase a chieftaincy. And then once you're chieftain, you are not chieftain of a territory. Mm -hmm. It's more like a faction. And oh. your job is to convince people to go in thing with you, which means they kind of swear allegiance to you, and uh, then you have a subject, basically. But it's not the subject like a king has. It's more like you have an agreement, kind of like an employer and employee almost, right. where you can either one can leave the, the this agreement. Right. Yeah. So if I either inherited or purchased a Gotar ship, mm -hmm. um, I would be spending... A lot of time just kind of hustling up supporters and trying to pitch them on like, exactly. listen, here's why you want to be with me in the thing. I've got this great plan. We're going to make Iceland great again. And then exactly. like they would they would sign up and come on with me because they, they they believed in something I was saying or I promised them something they liked. That is exactly it. Okay. Got yep. it. That's, okay. that's relatively democratic. That's not bad. Yeah. 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 So that's uh, what you learn about Icelandic society as you arrive. Now, the duel and the magic sword. Yes. Okay. This is our final story for today. So the Vikings, of course, were fond of their swords. They gave them names like Grey Wolf, Adder, Slicer, Leg Biter, Foot Biter. <laughs> I like how the one guy is just like, like all these badass Vikings, like, minus name Grey Wolf. And then that's like, minus name the Adder. Like, hey, Hrolf, what did you name yours? It's Slicer. <laughs> right. Like, There's always that really? one player at the table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a brother. His name is, he has a sword called Dicer. Dicer yeah. <laughs> yeah. So one of the most famous swords of all that shows up in a number of different sagas. And it's, it's got its own story arc. Oh, I hope it has the dumbest name. It's the most famous sword. Well, you, you decide. Okay. The sword is called Skofnong, which the I meaning like it, of I which, like it so far. The meaning of which is uncertain, but as far as I could dig up, it might mean polished. Okay, okay, that's not bad. I like it's kind it's of like understated. It's a gleaming sword. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Like, you don't have to brag about how badass it right. slices, dices, and stings yeah. people like an adder. It's just, yeah. just a nice-looking yeah. sword. Okay, so this sword was originally wielded by King Hrolf Kraki of Denmark, nephew of King Hrothgar, which is in the Beowulf story. He's the okay. guy who hires Beowulf, yeah. basically. And so this... that's the dude who had this sword. Uh, he's the nephew of the, the nephew king of... from Beowulf. Okay, had so the, sword. the king from Beowulf's nephew had the sword that is so good that you can just look at it and tell it's good. Exactly. It's yeah, and this sword is in, it's said to be imbued with the spirits of his 12 berserker bodyguards. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Yes. That's great. Yes. It is also said to sing when it cuts bone. Which scholar uh, Roderick Dale comes back once again right. suggests may possibly be connected with the Berserker Howling, mm. maybe. Finally, it must not be drawn in the presence of women. There are taboos around this sword. It must not be drawn in the presence of women. The sword Skofnong was buried with the king, but it was later dug up by Skiggy Midfjord. 
and our snippet today takes a rather humorous spin on this famous weapon. Great. So this particular snippet comes from Cormac's saga, where Cormac has found himself challenged to the homgong, or duel, over a girl. Cormac told his mother, Dalla, how he had got on. And the mother says, You've turned down an excellent match, and you don't stand a chance in the fight against Bercy, for he's a brave man with fine weapons. Does his name mean little bear? That's one of the words Maybe? that we Maybe? I don't know. I didn't look up the etymology of that one. Right. Bercy had offered Cormac his sister instead of the girl that Cormac wanted to marry, so Cormac challenged Bercy to a duel to win the hand of the girl that he really wanted to marry. That's how this got to this point. Got it. Bercy's sword was called Hvitting, which means maybe whiting? I don't know. <laughs> I, I see what you're saying. It, it, it possibly means whiting. Yeah, but at maybe. first you were like, it means maybe? And I was like, oh, is it just like a, it's like this really vague name. It's like the sword maybe called sword. maybe. Yeah. <laughs> no, maybe means whiting. Yeah. So this is enemy's sword, right? This is a sword that, a sharp sword with a healing stone in the hilt. Hmm. He had carried it in many life-threatening fights. So uh, Dalla says, where will you find weapons to use against fitting? And Cormac answered, that he would have a big, sharp axe. <laughs> <laughs> Dalla suggested that maybe he should visit Skeggy of Midfjord and ask him for the loan of his sword, Skofno. Which is... The magic sword that we heard about, the whole backstory. The polished. Yeah, polished yes. sword, yes. So Kordemak went to Roikir and explained his predicament to Skeggy. He asked him to lend Skofno but Skiggy was reluctant, saying that Kordemak and Skofnung had different temperaments. Skofnung is slow and deliberate, whereas you are rash and impatient, said Skiggy. <laughs> Kordemak then rode away, and he wasn't very pleased. When he got home to Mel, uh, that must be the name of his home, right. he told his mother that Skiggy would not lend the sword. Now, Skiggy looked after Dalla's business affairs, and there was a warm friendship between them. So he's got a thing going on with his mom. Sure. He will lend the sword, said Dalla, though he may not give in quickly. It's not fair if he'll lend the sword to you, but not to me, said Kormak. <laughs> Dalla then said that her son was an ill-tempered man. Some days later, Dalla told Kormak to go to Roikir. Skiggy will lend you the sword now. She said. So she fixed it. She was like, yep, got business done. Right. <laughs> so Cormac went to see Skeggy and asked for Skofnung. You'll find the sword difficult to handle, said Skeggy. There's a pouch attached to it, and you must leave that alone. The sun mustn't shine on the pommel, and you must never carry the sword unless you're getting ready for a fight. When you get to the scene of the fight, wait until you are sitting alone before drawing the sword. Then hold the blade out in front of you, blow on it, and a little serpent will wriggle out from under the pommel. Then turn the sword over to allow the serpent to wriggle back under the pommel. This is the most complicated magic sword. I <laughs> yeah. love this sword! You sorcerers put on quite a show, said Cormac. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Nonetheless, said Skiggy, everything must be done just so. So after this, Cormac rode home, and told his mother how he had got on, remarking that her wishes carried great weight with Skeggy. 
He's like waving the sword around in front of her. He's like, it's even got this pouch. I wonder what's in here. Just like rips it open. In the sunlight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He showed her the sword and tried to draw it, but it wouldn't come out of the scabbard. So exactly that. That's what he tried to do. Immediately. <laughs> Immediately. <laughs> You're too headstrong, my son, said Dalla. Then Quartermac put his feet on the hilt of the sword and oh. tore off the pouch. <laughs> exactly. Oh like my God. Said. <laughs> Skofnung howled, but stayed in its sheath. Time passed, and the appointed day arrived. Quartermac rode from his home with fifteen men, and Bersi too rode to the island with an equal number of men. Oftentimes, these uh, these duels took place on islands. Home actually means island. Gong means going, so it's like going to the island. Hmm. But it could also be a reference to the cloak that you'll see in a moment here. Quartermac arrived first and told Thorgils, which was his brother, that he wanted to sit on his own. Then he sat down and took off the sword. However, he made no effort to keep the pommel out of the sunlight, <laughs> and had actually been wearing it outside his clothes. <laughs> <laughs> he tried to draw the sword, but wasn't able to until he stood on the hilt. The little serpent came out, but it wasn't handled properly, so the spell was broken, and the sword came from the sheath groaning. Mm. After that... You don't that, want to be coming to a duel with a groaning sword. No, you don't want your sword to be groaning at you. <laughs> no, that thing's making any noises. You want it to either be happy or ferocious. <laughs> or singing when it cuts bone. Exactly, yeah. yeah. After that, Quartermac rejoined his companions. By then, by then, Bercy and his men had arrived, and many others had come to watch the fight. Quartermac picked up Bercy's shield and hacked at it so that sparks flew. A cloak was now spread on the ground for them to stand on. Cormac, you have challenged me to a formal duel, but I am offering you single combat instead, said Bercy. Yep, so single combat was like a way out, kind of. So the duel has all these complicated rules. Okay. Single combat is just like, just go at each other. No holds barred. Can you give an example of some of the rules with a duel? Like You will see them. Oh, because he's not going to take the out. It's going to say in the passage here, the rules of the duel. Got it. And mm-hmm. the rules of single combat would just be like, all right, let go. And everyone just Yep, fights. no holds barred. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So Bercy continues, you are a young and inexperienced man, and duels are a complicated business, but single combat is straightforward. Yeah, so what Bercy is offering is the single comment is called Einvigi, actually. Okay. And it's basically, yeah, like I said, uh, a simpler, last man standing kind of unregulated fight. But Quartermac is having none of it. He says, fighting in single combat won't be any better. I'll take my chances and consider myself your equal in everything. Just as you like, says Bercy. Now, here's where the story describes the rules of the duel. Great. The laws of dueling required that the cloak laid on the ground should be five L's square, and one L is 1.25 yards, one and a quarter yards. So a little bigger than a meter, probably. Right. Okay. And the cloak has loops at each corner, and pegs with heads at one shoulder are to be driven into each loop. Okay. These pegs are called tjusner, and whoever sets this up must approach the pegs in such a way that he can see the sky between his legs. So I figure he has to be like bending over and yeah, looking between his legs. Right. And he must hold the lobes of his ears while he says the prayer 
that is used later in the sacrifice called the Tjosner sac- sacrifice. So it's a ritual activity. So we're not it's just spreading out and, and, and tying down the cloak, lashing yep. it down. We're doing a ritual to like essentially consecrate or empower the area for a duel. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Right. Yep. Three squares, each a foot wide, must be measured around the cloak. And at the outer edges of these squares, there must be four poles called hazels. When these steps are complete, the field is called a hazeled field. Each man was to have three shields, and when all three were destroyed, he was to get onto the cloak, even if he had been driven from it before. And from then on, he was to defend himself there using his weapons alone. The one who had been challenged was to strike the first blow, and if either was wounded so that blood fell on the cloak, there was no obligation to go on fighting. Hmm. So it's kind of a first blood thing, but the blood has to fall on the cloak. If I'm understanding properly, they both have to stand on the cloak to do this. Yeah, but it sounds like at least in the early stages, you can kind of retreat off of the cloak. Right. But once your shields are all broken, then you have to stay on the cloak. Okay. So this is making worse because they're basically standing there and taking turns exchanging blows. Hmm. If a man stepped outside the hazel poles with one foot, he was said to be falling back on his heel. But if both feet went outside, he was said to be running. Hmm. So to me, that suggests you don't want to. You don't want to do that. that. It sounds yeah. like running away. Right. Each of the two fighters was to have a companion to hold his shield in front of him, and the man who was the more seriously wounded was to pay a dueling ransom of three marks of silver. It's hmm. a certain denomination of silver, right? Thorgils. So the loser of the duel does not necessarily die, but they pay a, essentially a prize money to the winner. Exactly, right? Because remember, it's to first blood that falls on the cloak. And they each have a guy holding their shield for them while they fight? That was what I thought at first, but mm-hmm. then later rereading it sounded like maybe the other guy just holds their shields while they're fighting. And then later, maybe like after somebody has you know been taken to this level of wounding and mm-hmm. spilled blood, then they get between them to keep the other guy from getting at him. Because right. that's the point in the story where they mention this. I don't know. It's not clear. That's interesting. I wonder, too, uh, this is hypothetical, but I know that, like, a lot of the time, if you were fighting in the shield wall, which they're not here, mm-hmm. your shield was not just, and maybe not even primarily, to protect yourself. It was for the guy to your left. And so I almost wonder if they have somebody holding their shield. And so that that way, the guy who's actually in the duel gets to fight, because that's what he should focus on. And you have the benefit of the shield without being in charge it of holding It is possible. Shields. I can't really decide what I just made that up. So, I mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So... Um, Thorgils carried the shield in front of his brother Quartermac, and Thord Andersson, Arndarsson, <laughs> Thord Andersson, did the same for Bersi. Bersi struck the first blow and split Cormac's shield. Cormac struck back just as aggressively. Each wrecked the other's three shields. Then it was Quartermac's turn to strike. So maybe it is turn striking. Hmm. And he swung at Bersi who warded off the blow with Hviting. Skofnung broke the point from Hviting right where the gutter ridge ended. The gutter ridge, I think, is the blood groove that lets the blood out. Right. Yeah. The sword point flew onto Cormac's hand, wounding his thumb. The joint was cut open, and blood dropped onto the cloak. After that, the men were separated and prevented from fighting on. This is a shabby victory that Bercy has won, said Cormac. He owes it to my bad luck, and yet we have to part now. So Cormac lost. He seems to be the only one who's actually wounded. 
Quartermac threw Skofnung down, and it hit Bercy's shield. Sparks were struck from the shield, and a notch was gouged from Skofnung. He wrecked the blade on top of everything oh, yeah. else. It was so nicely polished. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Bercy asked for the dueling ransom, and Cormac replied that it would be paid. With that, they parted. After that, Cormac went home to Mel and visited his mother. She healed his hand, the wound became ugly, and the flesh swelled up around it. <laughs> they tried to smooth the notch in Skofnung, but the more they tried, the larger it grew. Then he went back to Roikir, and threw the sword at Skeggy's feet and recited this verse. I bring back to you, Skeggy, this sword broken-edged, blunt-toothed. Truly their might outdid mine. No fault falls to me who fought fiercely for the girl, guarded by the singing of swords. And that is the end of the snippet. (laughs) What an ungrateful (laughs) douche, huh? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Wow. What a whiner. Yep. <laughs> Not my fault. Not my fault. It was your stupid sword. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the end of our episode for today, everybody. That's our stories and snippets from the Viking world. I love it. Thanks for being on the show again, Andre. Absolutely. Uh, Brandon, what do we have to look forward to in the next episode? In the next episode, we are going to experience the Viking world Ooh. in a role play. Yes. Yes. Uh, you are going to take the character of a berserker, mm-hmm. and we're also going to experience something about vengeance and Viking law. Excellent. Mm-hmm. I cannot wait. Yep. Yes. So that's what we have to look forward to. That's next time. Everybody remember, give us a review on Stitcher. I'll draw your portrait. I'll draw you <laughs> looking at Skofnong in your hand and being like... <laughs> piece of shit <laughs> the serpent just like Stupid. flipping you off like yeah. a serpent that's the one thing they can't do it's like what a like when a sports player like fails to catch the ball in his glove looks at his glove like it's the glove's fault you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah like that yeah <laughs> all right everybody i'll see you next time i'm bt newberg and this is dead ideas <laughs>